This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Hey, good morning to you. My name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. Um, admittedly, this, this morning is going to be a, a little bit steep on takeoff. I, um, when I was living in Orange County, we would, you know, in the airport there, you just, you jet straight up, and because of the noise ordinances, you you kill all the engines. I think that's what they do. I can only assume it's what it feels like. And then you coast out over to the ocean and then turn them back on and go. This morning is going to be a little bit like that. Steep on takeoff. I promise we'll steady out right after. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. We're in a series that we're doing on the book of Acts where we're exploring uh, what Jesus continued to do and continues to do through his church. As the Holy Spirit moved and shaped and formed this body of believers, they started to take on this, um, this identity, this DNA, and, and they started to spread throughout the world. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts are primarily the way that the church sort of takes root amongst Jewish people. Uh, and then it starts growing further and further out to the very ends of the earth as Jesus, in fact, promised and um, begged his church that they would be about, that the Holy Spirit would come on them with power and that they would be his witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so we started to wrestle with this question last week, and I want to um, invite you into where we were last week. If you're here, this will be a little bit of review, um, and that's okay. If you weren't here, we need to get caught up because uh, where we're going this morning is, is beautiful and significant. I think Acts chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters you have in your Bible. What was decided in Acts chapter 15 in many ways shapes who we are and what we do as a body of believers today. If they had decided something different in Acts chapter 15, we would look very different as a community of faith. And so I don't think we can overestimate how important this is. And you know what? To the extent that the church gets Acts chapter 15 wrong is the extent to which you hear things like, I really like Jesus and I'm drawn to Jesus, but, but I just don't like the church. Um, I, I really, I, I'm drawn to, to um, what Jesus has done and to the gospel and his goodness and his grace for me, but his people are just hard to be around. In many ways, Acts chapter 15, if you walked away from the church after high school, during college, my, my guess is it's because maybe the community of faith you were involved in didn't get Acts chapter 15 quite right. So it's significant for us. Here's where we're going to find ourselves. Paul is sent out, the apostle Paul is sent out on what we're calling missionary journeys. And he goes around the known world at the time, and he spreads the message of the hope of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He, he shares the gospel. And these little ecclesias, these churches, start to form. In Acts chapter 15, or sorry, 13, we read about how the apostle Paul went and preached the good news, the gospel, to a primarily Jewish audience. And so here's what the apostle Paul did. He really, he entered into this story, this narrative of what God is like according to the Jewish people. It's a narrative that he knew well. He grew up in it. Um, we, we'll just call it for our purposes this morning, the narrative of Israel. And so in Acts chapter 13, he steps into the story of Israel and he starts to unpack for them their history. Uh, Abraham, Abraham, 
It's hard to write and talk at the same time, um, especially when you're used to talking with your hands. They're tied up. I can't say what I really want to say. So he talks to them about their history in the person of Abraham, Moses, and the law, and the prophets. And remember, these people were in many ways defined by what God said in the law and the prophets. It was a community of faith that was shaped around what God had said and done in the law and the prophets. We read about how the kings really ultimately pointed to this one king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus, right, excellent, you're with me. So here's what Paul does. He steps into, in Acts chapter 13, this Jewish story. And from the inside, he really, he exegetes the story. He pulls all the pieces together. And in this beautiful, masterful way, he points them to this risen Savior who freed them. From everything the law of Moses couldn't free them from, Acts chapter 13, somewhere in the 40s, okay? It's a beautiful exegesis of the story of Israel. And he points them to their Messiah. And he says, this is the good news, that everything God promised leading up to Jesus, he has fulfilled in the risen Messiah. Now, the question we have to wrestle with is this. What happens if you weren't born into that story? What happens if you grow up, like many of us did or have, without knowing anything about who this Abraham character is, uh, who this Moses guy is, who these kings were? Sounds great, but how do we interact with these people? They don't know the story. How, How do we interact with God if we don't? And in Acts chapter 14, Paul answers that question for us. Here's what he says. He interacts with an audience that was uh, called the Gentiles. Now, that's really sort of this biblical dump truck term for anybody who's not Jewish. (laughs) So, Paul starts to interact with them, and he steps into their story. And their story looks very different than Abraham and Moses and kings. It it looks like um, Zeus, and it looks like Hermes. And he steps into this story and he says, hey, 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 even in this story, you have these inklings, these hints of what God is like. And in Acts chapter 14, he says, let me introduce you to an old friend. Let me introduce you to somebody who you've always known, but you may not have a name for. And he says, even though in the, in the people of God, in the story of Israel, they had the law and the prophets, and they pointed them to their risen Savior who freed them. His name is Jesus. He said to the Gentiles, you have raindrops. When you look up at the sky, when, when the rain comes down and it, and it feeds your fields and food grows, that, that's sort of what God is like. If you've experienced that, you've experienced this benevolent creator, God. And he says, you have joy, satisfaction that fills your heart. If you've experienced that, you've you've experienced God. And he goes, he points to seasons and food. He says, if you've sat around a table and you've enjoyed good food with great friends and family, well, you sort of know what God is like then. I mean, I can see some of you weren't here and you're looking at me like, seriously? Seriously? 
Yeah, seriously. Verse 17 of chapter 14, he says, God did not leave himself without witness, even in the story of Zeus and Hermes. He goes, if that's the story you're living, with, living in, even God has not left you without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And here's the point of last week. Here's what we said. is that not all paths lead to God. That's not what we're saying with this. But what we are saying is that God meets people on every path and he leads them to Jesus. So here's what we see is that Galatians chapter one, that Paul writes to these people who lived in this story of of Zeus and Hermes, of of gods that got angry and threw lightning bolts and you never knew what they were gonna do. God meets people even there and leads them to Jesus. Now, Word about this starts to spread, okay? Word that, that this Gentile group is becoming Christians starts to spread. And it causes a little bit of trouble for church people like you and me. Because days before they meet, met Jesus, they may have been in a temple of a other God, worshiping in some pretty strange ways. They may have done interesting things to their body. They may have eaten different things. And so the question that the church wrestles with in Acts chapter 15 is, do these people here, these Gentiles, do they need to then go and be part of that story? Do they need to become part of the story of Israel before they become part of the story of Jesus? Do they need to be introduced to Moses? before they meet Jesus. Acts chapter 15, verse one. Here's how they wrestle with this question in the early first church. Verse one. But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers. Now, this is down from um, Judea into Antioch. It's north on your map, but it's down geographically. So, They come from sort of the the hub and the center and there's Pharisees who've become Christians and here's what they say. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, you think it's hard to get men to go to church now. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine this discussion? They're like, Really? Are you kidding me? So here's the deal. Along with this story, there were certain rites, there were certain rituals, there were certain festivals and celebrations that went along with the story that God was telling through the nation of Israel, pointing up and leading to his Messiah. One of these was circum... It's even hard to to spell. Decision. The other was... um, Law. So there's 613, they estimate, about 613 different laws. And the question that the early church wrestles with, because some prominent, it seems like, leaders who came out of a Pharisaical background wrestled with was, what do people who turn to Jesus really need to do? What does a follower of Jesus look like? Is it possible to skip all of these things that were such a huge part of the story of what it meant to be the people of God and take a shortcut right to Jesus? Is that that possible? 
A while back, um, Kelly and I and some friends, we climbed Mount Bierstadt, which is one of the 14ers. It's right here in the front range. And Mount Bierstadt's right next to Mount Evans. And so we had climbed up Bierstadt, and it was, um, it's not one of the harder 14ers, but it's a 14er, right? Um, and so we're standing on the top of it and just like, glory to God, peace on earth, thank you, Lord. And then we see on Mount Evans, and if you've ever climbed Mount Bierstadt, you've probably experienced this. We see on Mount Evans, people get out of their car and stand on the peak. And I look at them and I'm like, oh, heck no. <laughs> right now, no gift shop like at the top of Pikes Peak, but like they have the shirt on that says I climbed a 14. I'm like, you take that shirt off right now. You climbed out of your forerunner is what you did. Let's get that right. And I think there's this, this, this semblance in the Jewish followers of Jesus where they're looking at, him go, at, at the Gentile Christians thinking the same thing. You can't skip all that and have it count. Is it really, could it, could it be, could God be that good that it's really just Jesus? Huh. Well, so before we start throwing stones at the Pharisaical Christians who come down and say, listen, you can't be saved unless you go back and walk through the story of Israel and have a little surgery that, by the way, back then would have been quite painful. <laughs> I mean, how do we, 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 do th- we play the same game, don't we, friends? Don't we? I mean, it's not have the surgery, but, it, but it's like, okay, um, if you could dress the right way, if you could do the right things, if you could behave the right, if you could just start behaving like a Christian before you become one, we'd be a lot more comfortable with you. Right? And, and I hope it's uncomfortable after. Like, oh yeah, we do, we play that game. We play that game. And the way that the early church wrestles with this question in many ways defines the direction of the church. It defines who we are as the people of God. It defines how we look at people who aren't yet part of the people of God. And it defines how we look at ourselves. Because I don't know, if you're anything like me, I start playing this game where I hold on to things that maybe, just maybe, increase my prominence in God's view. If I do X, Y, and Z, God, then you're going to be like, this Paulson character is really tearing it up down there. And here's what this early church wrestles with, and here's what they eventually decide. We talked about this last week. But we said that in Colossians, the book of Colossians, uh, the apostle Paul in chapter two, verses 16 and 17, he describes this old system as a shadow. So here's what he says. He goes, hey, this, this whole The way that you eat matters. The things that you eat matter. The way that you wash your hands matter. The clothes that you wear matters. This whole external religious system was really just a shadow. And what that shadow was doing was pointing to the eventual person and work of Jesus. And so the early church has to wrestle with, we're not saved by the shadow, We're saved by the person that creates a shadow. His name is Jesus. His work is complete on the cross. He's risen. He's the savior. He's freed us. And so the early church is gonna say, no, no, no. Gentiles do not need to go back and walk through the story and surgeries and rites and rituals of the Israelite people. They can indeed take 
a shortcut to Jesus. And here's what we see. That this story of God, the story that God is telling, includes Israel, yes. Is limited to Israel, no. Raindrops, seasons, food, all part of his story. But this story of God reaches its fulfillment, its end, its goal, its culmination. In the Greek, it's this word telos in the person and work of Jesus. Listen to the way that Paul says this to the church at Colossae. It's this beautiful, wonderful, significant passage. And here's what he says. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Like God looked on Jesus and went, that is everything that I am. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile, to bring back to himself. How many things, friends? All things. Now, that's a lot of things. Whether on earth or in heaven, so he doesn't leave a whole lot out there. Like, in Christ, God is just gathering everything he created up and bringing it back to him and declaring that in him it's good. making peace by the blood that he shed on his cross. Past tense. Done deal. Beautiful. Beautiful. See, the story of God, it reaches its culmination, its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. But this group struggles with that. These religious people, they're like, well, it can't be that easy, can it? And so they have this whole council to try to figure out Can it really be that easy? Listen to verses three through five, and then we'll jump into the rest of the chapter. It says, so being sent on their way, this is Paul and Barnabas, they're sent by the Antioch church down to Jerusalem to have what what theologians and scholars are gonna call the Jerusalem council. You might think it doesn't matter, but I can assure you if it's a man, our membership process would have looked a little bit different had this gone a different way. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, so they're traveling down to Jerusalem, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So this is um, a little bit of campaigning on Paul and Barnabas's part, I think. They're, having a con- they're going down to have a conversation about whether or not these people are part of the people of God. And on the way, they're going, high five, welcome to the kingdom. Verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and declared all that God had done with them. Verse five, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, which is a minor miracle in itself and possibly an oxymoron, but we can talk about that later, rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's what they say to Paul. Paul, all your your missionary journey was great. The time that you spent telling people about the gospel was awesome. But the boat's ready for you to go back and to add to that message. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, you're bound to all this also. And Paul goes, that's not what I told him. That wasn't the message that I gave to them. 
And that wasn't the message that they responded to. And what you're telling me is you want me to go back and you want me to tell these people who just came to Christ and they were worshiping Zeus and Hermes one day and they met Jesus the next. You want me to go back and you want me to tell them they need to become a part of the story of Israel. They need to be circumcised and they need to follow, quote, the law of Moses. That's a fine print that I didn't tell them about. And so the church has this gracious disagreement (laughs) as they wrestle through, what does it really look like to be the people of God? What does it look like to become the people of God? And it has huge implications for you and I today. Picking up in Acts chapter 15, verse six, here's where we go. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So this is a meeting of the minds, the most prominent followers of Jesus at the time. They're all around the proverbial table to discuss and decide what does it really look like to follow the way of Jesus. And after there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That my mouth, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Most people think he's pointing back to what happened in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius, this Roman centurion, part of the Roman army, responds to the gospel. His whole household does. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They become believers. Peter is God's messenger who delivers that message, and he sees it with his own eyes, and he's in shock because he thinks the Gentiles should have to come and be part of this story. And he goes, and God, oh, catch this, this is awesome, this is awesome, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So he goes, hey, remember, guys, remember back in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on us and they're speaking in tongues and miraculous signs and wonders? Remember that? And they're like, oh, yeah, we remember that. He goes, well, it happened to them, too. So what are you going to do about that? He says, God, he looks at the heart. We can look at the actions. We can look at the behaviors. We can look at everything external. But do you know what? Will you just look up at me for just a second? God sees right to the core of who you are, to the very heart. Verse 9, and he made, this is awesome, no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. And here's what we see. Here's what we're invited to step into as those who want to follow the way of Jesus today. That we have to be people that trust and know that God sees and transforms the heart. So here's what Paul says. Paul says that these people who were stepping out of this story, this Gentile story, they were people who by faith trusted in Jesus. That the shortcut they took, they didn't go back through circumcision, they didn't go back through law and the prophets, Abraham, Moses, and the kings. They simply by faith trusted that Jesus was enough. And he goes, and I saw God transform their hearts. Now let me ask you a question. Does he still do that today? Before people start to behave a certain way, does he reach in? Before people start to look like us, talk like us, sing like us, 
spend their money like us, spend their recreation, before they start to look a certain way, is it possible for God to see the longings, the desires, the hopes, the dreams of their heart? Yeah, yeah. And so as churches are so, we're so good at looking at what the outside looks like and what the behavior looks like, and we can sort of say, well, we we think you're probably um, not quite there yet. And what this passage says is, will you let God do what only God can do? He goes, there's no distinction between us and them. Now, so in God's eyes, God's view, there's two categories. People that know and trust and walk with his son, Jesus, people that don't. And he goes, I'm the one that knows and judges the heart. So this early church, they have to wrestle with this. They have to wrestle with this. He goes on. He goes on. It says, now, verse 10, now, why are you putting God to the test? Isn't that awesome? Why are you, why are you testing God, which is a, I wouldn't do that if I were you type of statement. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our forefathers nor we could bear? So he goes, hey, let's just have a talk. While the elders and the leaders and all the the people that are prominent in the early life of the church, let's let's just all gather around and, and hey, hey, Billy, how's it gone for you trying to keep 613 different laws? Billy goes, well, not good. Quite terrible at it, really. I was okay, thank you. And Robert, what about you? Same. I'm horrific. So, so, so Peter goes, okay, okay, so I'm trying to get this. So we stink at keeping our own law. And they're like, yes. And we want to impose upon other people to try to do something we can't do? Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, what? And you would almost imagine Peter just gathering him around and saying, hey, when, when, when the Messiah walked the earth with us, do you remember what he said? And they're all like, probably said a lot of stuff. But do you remember what he said? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you some more laws to try to accomplish. <laughs> no. His invitation was, hey, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Come learn from me, because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and I'll give you rest for your soul. But we believe, here's verse 11, we, will be, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Oh, see, here's the deal. Here's why this is awesome. Because the Gentiles were saved by grace through faith, right? And here's what Paul just said, or sorry, Peter just said. Even though you were in this story, Israel, and you did all the rights, and you tried your best to follow all the laws, you were still saved by grace through faith. So he looks at it and he goes, it's the same for all of us, friends. It's the same for all of us. And even Abraham, 
Abraham, he was saved before he was ever circumcised. The scriptures say that by faith, he was accredited, made righteous before God. Before he ever had a very painful surgery, he walked right with God. Galatians chapter three. And so here's Peter's point to this Jerusalem council. He says, hey, friends, it has always been about faith, about the grace our Lord Jesus Christ, period. Nothing else. Nothing else. And so the early church, they, they start to fight for this Jesus alone gospel. Like it's not Jesus plus the way that we behave. It's not Jesus plus how many quiet times we have. It's not Jesus plus how great our prayer life is. It's not Jesus plus short-term mission trips we go on. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus only. Jesus, period. In fact, in fact, Paul would go so far as to say, not only to fight for this Jesus alone gospel, but he would say in the book of Galatians, as he writes to the region that he said this to originally, he would say, if you accept circumcision, Okay, so if you want to try to sort of negotiate with God, if you want to, in a sense, sort of um, pad your accomplishments with him, if, if Jesus alone is sort of iffy to you, if you go back and you try to play this game, because Jesus is going to be, Christ is going to be of no advantage to you, of no value to you. It's one or the other. The end of every baseball season, the major, major league baseball seems to put together this um, highlight film. And in almost every single year, there's this scene. It seems to happen every year where um, a young dad is at a baseball game. And he has a baby in one arm and a beer in the other. And there's a foul ball that's hit to this dad. And you can see this internal struggle. And usually they slow-mo it because it's just awesome. And it's just like, oh, what am I going to do? Right? So the dad's holding the baby in one arm, beer in the other, ball coming towards him. And he's got to decide what direction am I going here? <laughs> and of course, most dads, they just, they drop the baby, they hold the beer, and they catch the ball. Right? No, I'm just, just kidding. Of course, of course not. But they have to decide, am I, which direction am I going? Who am I going to, am I going to be the dad that's played over and over for dropping the baby, holding the beer, catching the ball, or am I going to be the good dad, right? And the nation of Israel, they have this, well, not all that similar, let's be honest, but decision to make. Are we going to hold Jesus alone? Is he going to be enough? Or is it Jesus plus rites? Is it Jesus plus rituals? Is it Jesus plus religion? Is it Jesus plus Moses? Do we have to be introduced to Moses before we're introduced to Jesus? Do we have to become followers of Moses before we follow the Messiah? Or is Jesus alone enough? And you know what the early church decides? Jesus alone is enough. Listen to the way that he goes on in verse 19. I love this because James is now the leader of this Jerusalem church and he stands up before them and he goes, he says this, it's my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Other translations say, we shouldn't make it hard. We shouldn't make it hard for those who want to turn to Jesus. 
Isn't that what a great, earth-shattering, mind-bending concept? That as a church, we shouldn't create a bunch of hoops for people to jump through. We shouldn't make it difficult. Our goal should be, let's make it as easy as we possibly can for people to encounter the living Christ. Peter goes, or James stands up before this council and goes, I just can't believe that we're gonna make it harder than it really is. And this is a tension the church must engage. Let me put it more, this is a tension we must engage, friends. How do we make it not harder but easier for people to encounter Jesus? How do we create inroads and on-ramps for people to meet this absolutely beautiful, risen, freeing Messiah? Not how do we make it harder and, and how can we keep people at more of a distance and we don't like the things you, the, the way that you dress and the tattoos you have on your body and the way that you talk and all that. We don't, we don't, we don't, no, 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 no. Come, come, be a part. And a lot of people walked away from the church. A lot of you probably walked away from the church because the church didn't get this right. And it was, you can come if, And it was unspoken and it was subtle, but you can come if you look like us, talk like us, believe like us. (laughs) And what God says, I love love Peter's response. Are we going to make it harder than God's going to make it? We really want to go there? Like, it doesn't seem like God's given us all these rules. Do, Do we really want, and I mean, religious people are so good at making more rules, aren't they? Not even all these were gods. Oh, man. <laughs> Here's the deal. We look up at me, friends. Can, can we be a church that welcomes people exactly where they are, as they are, and trusts that God is powerful enough in his goodness and his grace in his presence to take them from there and lead them to where he wants them to go. That's where this early church lands. They're gonna fight for this. We will not compromise on Jesus, but we will not create anything else that people trip over when they're getting to him. Oh, what a beautiful picture. See, he's the cornerstone and the stumbling block, right? People either trip over him or they build their life on him. No in between, but as the church, as the church, we have to be the people that say the gospel is Jesus, his goodness and his grace and his mercy, and he's sufficient and he's enough and everything else is secondary. He's the cornerstone. Let's build on him. And here's the beautiful thing about this, friends. If Salvation is as, quote-unquote, easy as turning to God. And it is. And if you're far from him today, even if you've walked with him for a while and you've just sort of, you've wandered away, if you're far from him today, can I tell you, returning is just as easy. He didn't create any hoops for you to get in the first time, quote-unquote. There's no hoops for you to get home. No games with God, just grace. Just grace. And the welcome mat is wide open. Verse 12. Verse 12. 
And the assembly fell silent. Isn't that awesome? A bunch of leaders silent. That's a modern miracle. <laughs> we saw speaking in tongues, but this group of Jewish leaders is silent. What? Okay. Sorry. And they listened. <laughs> okay, no. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas. And they related the signs that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, who's this leader in the early church, replies, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with these words, the prophets agree, just as it's written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Here's what he says. This was never a story only about Israel. This was a story about what God was doing. And he was, through Israel, blessing the entire world. But it's always been about the entire world. It's always been about the entire world. And so I think what, what James says to the church is, let's understand the meta-narrative of this story that we find ourselves in, that this is not just the story of God. History is his story. History is. He owns it all. And he's redeeming it all. And he's shaping it all. And as Colossians says, he's reconciling it all. By the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. He goes, he goes, let's just step back before we start saying, oh, the Gentiles have to become like the Israelites. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow the law. Let's just remember God's plan from the beginning is this is good news for all people. For all people. Well, so the council wrestles with this. And they decide what they're going to do. And here's what they say, verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment, James stands up before this council and says, that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't make it hard, but we should write them. So they're gonna send this letter back to the church at Antioch, and it has implications for everywhere that Paul has gone and preached the Jesus alone gospel. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. It has implications for all of them because this letter is going to say, here's what the council decided. And so you can imagine the men standing at the gates waiting for the letter to come back. Surgery or no surgery? <laughs> Some dude's like sharpening his flint knife, right? And we're like, oh no, please, no, right? And so they're going, surgery or no surgery? What are we going to do? And here's what they decide. That was too much. I'm sorry. We'll edit that out. Should not make it hard for people who are turning to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols or food that's been sacrificed to idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, an odd list. Let's boil 613 laws down to four. Don't strangle stuff. Stay away from food sacrifice. Right, I mean... 
Here, here's what they do. Here's what they do. Here's what they do. They, they look back through and they, there's some laws in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. And a lot of people will wrestle with, well, are some of these moral laws and some of these um, civil laws and some of them ceremonial laws? And what are they? I think the best solution is they tell them, here's some ceremonial, ceremonial laws that it would be good for you to follow. Now, it's interesting because even this decision isn't necessarily binding. It's not, hey, if you're saved, then you gotta do this. Or if you're really saved, these are gonna be the things that you, obvi- no, 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 it's not, it's not that at all. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter eight and Romans chapter 14 is gonna go on and say, hey, depending on the context, it's okay sometimes to eat food sacrificed to idols because an idol really isn't anything anyway. What do we do with that? Here's the message that the Jerusalem council sends back. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The message to the Jew. Grace is enough. Grace is enough. In fact, Paul writes to the Galatian church. He says, I don't nullify the grace of God or I don't zero it out in my account. For if righteousness, if I could have been made right through the law, well, then Christ died for no reason. He goes, no, 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 no. It's Jesus only and his grace is enough. His message to the Gentile is this. Unity is essential. So he says to the Gentile believers who've lived in a story for their whole existence of idol worship and eating food sacrificed to idols, and, and he goes, hey, hey, it's, it's not necessarily categorically wrong for you to eat food sacrificed to idol, and idol is nothing anyway. But what's wrong is to cause some of your brothers who love Jesus to stumble. That's what's wrong. And so will you, he says to this church, will you lay down your rights for the people around you. How un-American, right? We love our rights. We've got a bill that states them and we'll cling to them. That's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if we're unwilling to lay them down for the sake of the whole. So he says, all right, to the Jew, grace is enough. To the Gentile, unity is essential. And to all, love is the new and guiding ethic. So he says, you wanna wanna know how to walk as a follower of Jesus? Walk in love. In fact, all 613 laws, they hang on these two, Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You wanna know what it looks like to walk and be a follower of Jesus? Love, love. I'll end with this passage because I just think it's so beautiful. Paul writes this to the Galatian church. He says, for in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. God doesn't see those categories, he says. There's not the religious people and the irreligious people. There's not the people that have this past, this history that God can't seem to get over until they conform There's just people, and he loves them all. 
Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts, but the only thing that counts is faith working its way out through love. So he goes, hey, you wanna know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to walk in the way of the risen, freeing Messiah, cling to him, walk with him, and love the people around you. That's what it looks like. And they look back at him and go, so so it's only Jesus. That's it? Only Jesus? Only Jesus. It's a backpacking guide. We used to walk up these switchbacks up a tall mountain and the high schoolers we were with would always want to cut over the switchbacks. And I found great joy in yelling at those high schoolers because they deserved it. I'm like, there's no shortcuts, guys. There's no shortcuts. Stay on the path. What are you doing? (laughs) You know what God says to you? Take the shortcut. His name is Jesus. He's sufficient. He's enough. No games. Just grace. Let's pray. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.